The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, as well as an MDiv student under care of Calvary Presbytery of the PCA. I have with me in the studio today Dr. Benjamin Shaw and Dr. Sidney Dyer. They are uh, instructors here at the seminary, professors, longtime professors at the seminary in biblical languages primarily, as well as uh, biblical studies. Dr. Shaw is our Hebrew and Old Testament professor, and Dr. Dyer is our Greek and New Testament professor. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, glad to be here. Today, the topic of discussion has to do with what's called the majority text or textual criticism. Uh, Both Dr. Shaw and Dr. Dyer are proponents of the majority text as opposed to the critical text. That particular preference of theirs, as well as other faculty members here at the seminary, has uh, elicited some questions among interviewees of the podcast, including Mark Ward, author of Authorize, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, and also um, some of our faith and practice listeners who have posed questions to Dr. Piper about textual preferences. This has been a hot-button issue as, I would say, the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement has matured, and folks who have uh, dove really into confessional iterations of the Reformed faith have, um, have asked the question, what is the textual basis of our modern translations, and does it comport or compute with our our confessional convictions? So that's one question among many that we're going to address in this podcast. Um, We're not going to really use this as an introduction to textual critical issues. Rather, we're going to try to address some what may appear to some to be obscurantist questions. So we have uh, we have some questions that were sent to us. We also have uh, some that Dr. Dyer prepared for us uh, that he sees as common uh, questions worth asking when we're approaching textual critical issues from a confessional standpoint. And I'm going to kick it off with a very basic one. Is there a confessional basis for holding to the majority text position? This is something that Dr. Shaw and I have talked about previously. It's been some time. Um, but if you read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8, it reads this way. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native tongue of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence here it is, kept pure in all ages. This is, of course, where the standards speak about the divine preservation of God's holy word. One of the things that I find interesting is everybody on both sides of the issue want to talk about preservation. Those who hold to the critical text position say, yeah, we believe that the New Testament was preserved, but in certain manuscripts, particularly Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. My point, and this is what I tell my students, the doctrine of preservation really means nothing if it doesn't mean preserved for the use of the church. And I firmly believe that the majority text 
uh, is where we find God preserving his word for the use of the text. A manuscript that was found at a monastery on Mount Sinai uh, being allegedly the best, one of the best witnesses for the Greek New Testament is, in my judgment, uh, not really a valid point in terms of looking at the doctrine of preservation. Perhaps Dr. Shaw has something to add to that. Well, I would just add that historically speaking, it seems to me that the uh, majority text is the text that has been represented really throughout all of the ages of the church and that the Alexandrian text, which is primarily what the modern uh, critical eclectic text is, uh, is really of relatively recent, uh, is rel a relatively recent historical development. And so the, I, I think it's a, it's a historical issue that this is, a, the majority text is a text that was available to the church throughout all the ages of the church. And just for the sake of some basic definitions, I wanted to get that question out there first, because as I suspected in answering it, you men have hinted at what majority means and what critical text entails as well. The majority text is the, the Greek and the Hebrew um, text of the New and Old Testaments, respectively, that are drawn from the majority of extant manuscripts that we have in our possession today from various ages of history, those copies of the original autographs and copies of the copies of the original autographs that have been handed down to us, whereas the critical text and the eclectic text, what Dr. Shaw refers to there, is, is really a, a synthesis text of, um, of all of the um, all of the, the manuscripts that we have, uh, even including some that were unearthed after the codification of what we refer to as the majority text. Is that a fair, rough and ready definition of, of the two uh, traditions in terms of textual bases? Yes, I think so. The, um, it, it should be pointed out, though, that every published text that we have, whether you're talking ter in terms of the Textus Receptus, the majority text, as it's commonly called, or the modern critical text, all of these texts are eclectic. That is, they make choices from among the available manuscripts. Uh, no one particular manuscript is, in that sense, preferred uh, above others uh, because uh, there are going to be readings in in the modern eclectic text that don't agree with any particular manuscript. I guess at this point it would be appropriate to ask how many doctrinally significant differences exist between what we call the majority text and what we call the critical text? There isn't any major doctrine that's at stake. I believe I could hold up what I might consider to be the most corrupt Greek New Testament, and I could still say, this is the word of God. There's nothing at stake, no major doctrine of orthodoxy that's at stake in terms of which textual position you take, whether you take a critical text position or a majority text position. Uh, no doctrine is actually at stake. Uh, and I should add this, uh, something we may develop a little further in, in this podcast, is we don't consider textual criticism to be an area of orthodoxy. 
Uh, we have men on the faculty that hold to a critical text position, and we love these brothers. We don't get into heated arguments with them. Uh, maybe we should, but we don't. Um, I was actually trained uh, when I was in grad school uh, to do critical text methodology. And it took me a while to arrive at the majority text position, but eventually I, I believe that that is the, the best way of handling uh, textual criticism. But again, no major doctrine is at stake. Yes, there's the Trinity, the, Trinity, the full humanity and deity of Christ, uh, other key doctrines, justification by faith alone, uh, sanctification by the work of the Spirit. None of these doctrines are affected by the whether you make the choice between uh, a majority text, a textus receptus, or uh, a critical text. Now, some uh, uh, some positions are perhaps going to be a, a little bit more clear. Uh, if some verses are retained or some things are retained uh, from a majority text that are absent from the critical text. But uh, by and large, it's not. Uh, and that's why I sometimes refer to it as a tempest in a teapot. I, I think sometimes uh, there is more blood spilled over this debate than there should be. So this is absolutely not an issue worth dividing over. This is this would not be, in your mind, a, a legitimate criterion for choosing a church to attend among you know two you know otherwise equal options uh, in a particular town, or even establishing a, a, a continuing church over like splitting a denomination over an issue like this. Right. That 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 would be pointless. Well, <laughs> now there are those who, if you don't preach from the King James, if you don't make the King James uh, your only text, they think that you're in serious error. Um, True, but, but that would, I, would, I would think that would be, at the very most, a tiny minority in uh, conservative Reformed circles yeah. uh, today, at least in the U.S. Yeah, there was a seminarian that came a few years ago who was a King James-only person, and what really got him to rethink his position is I showed him, you know, I was projecting uh, on the screen um, a page from the original 1611 KJV. And I asked the students to notice that the title of the book was Bell and the Dragon. This student had no idea that the original 1611 KJV actually contained the Apocrypha. And, I, and that got him rethinking, and now he's... He's, he's probably, changed his position. He's changed his position. He's, he's, he's not King James only, but at least if he is, he, not for the same reasons. When we're talking about the King James version of the Bible and the majority text, it's important here to insert a bit of a distinction. King James onlyists, if they have a textual basis for that view, it really goes back to a commitment to textus receptus, or textus receptus, however you pronounce it, uh, versus a majority text. What would be the difference between those two things? Is the majority text the textus receptus, and if not, what is the distinction? Well, the textus receptus is technically a printed edition of the Greek New Testament. Uh, it, the, what was actually became known as the textus receptus uh, was based on Erasmus's uh, Greek New Testament. And again, that is based on a 
printed edition of the Greek New Testament. The majority text position is a position where there's a majority of manuscripts um, from the Byzantine area, um, and so it's it's broader. Now, the six manuscripts that Erasmus had were all um, Byzantine text type, if you want to use that language, text type. Um, and so that's why there's a close association between the Texas Recaptus and the majority text position, but they are not one and the same. I think uh, there's been some attempt to make them uh, the same, maybe because of some confusion. But there have been some, I think, legitimate attacks against those who hold exclusively to the Texas Recaptus, uh, and then th those arguments against the Texas Recaptus uh, get carried over to those of us who hold the majority text position, but it's not the same. Yeah, I think there, if I remember correctly, there are something like 1,500 differences uh, between the Textus Receptus and the uh, any of the, pr the printed majority text. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful to keep in mind um, because one of the questions that folks would ask those who prefer the majority text is, do you only preach from the King James Version of the Bible? And Clearly, that's a more appropriate question uh, when posed to folks who would have a commitment to the Textus Receptus as opposed to the majority text. In fact, there are even some recent translations that have been produced, such as the modern English version and, of course, the New King James version of the Bible that uh, draw or depend upon a bit more the majority text rather than exclusively the Textus Receptus produced by Erasmus of Rotterdam. Well, the... New King James Version, the text of the New Testament that's translated is actually the Textus Receptus. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I appreciate about the New King James is that in the marginal notes, they will indicate where the majority text differs from the Textus Receptus uh, or when the uh, Nestle Elan critical text differs from the Textus Receptus so that you've got that information uh, in the margin. And so for the, I, I would say for the layperson who wants to sort of uh, follow this out, that would be one way of doing it. Just look at the marginal notes in your New King James Version of the Bible. Do you think that lay people should blindly adopt the, the version of the Bible used in the pulpits of the churches that they, that they attend? Or should they critically approach this issue and, and interrogate their pastors over the choice of translation and then take with them to church that translation of the Bible that they believe to be um, least corrupted by scientific approaches to textual criticism or whatever? I think the problem with that question is that it presumes it's a technical question, uh, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit like asking your layperson who's not mechanically inclined to accept blindly the recommendation of his mechanic regarding which car to buy, the non-technically inclined layperson is not in a position to evaluate his mechanic's recommendation. Uh, likewise, the uh, not technically informed layperson is not in a position to evaluate his or her particular pastor's choice of Bible. Uh, and we should note that there are really only two types of translations that are available. The, uh, those based on the Textus Receptus, the King James and the New King James, 
and those based on the critical text, uh, the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, uh, almost any uh, of the modern translations of the Bible are based in the New Testament on the Nestle Elan critical eclectic text. Uh, and so they, those are really your only two choices. There are no, as far as I know, uh, no tr modern translations where the New Testament is based on the majority text. Except for that MEV, Modern English Version. Yeah. I think they, they based it on a majority text, but the translation as a whole, though admirable in some respects, lacks any cohesive, um, unifying approach to translation or philosophy of translation. Right. Yeah, I agree with what um, Dr. Shaw just said. I'd like to add this. I don't really believe that a layperson you know, needs to be concerned about textual critical issues. I tell my students, avoid making textual critical points from the pulpit. Avoid those like the plague. A lot of times, a textual variant has very little to do with the overall message of the text that a man would preach from. And I only bring in a textual question if I'm aware that people are using different versions of the Bible uh, when I'm preaching. And I think sometimes people appreciate knowing, well, there is a textual variant here. Uh, here's why it reads differently in your New King, J I mean, in your New American Standard or your ESV versus the New King James that I'm preaching from. Um, so it's it's really not, it's it's really something they don't need to be concerned about. Um, they should just relax about it. They're not going to hear anything that's going to throw them off in terms of any of their basic beliefs. Um, I guess I would say that, as far as the layperson is concerned, uh, if you're really interested in this kind of thing, pay attention to the textual notes in whatever translation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that you're using, uh, but but it's a New Testament textual criticism is a specialized field, and and I don't I don't know of any layperson out there who has the time uh, to devote to uh, studying that in a way that would enable him on his own uh, to make a, a responsible uh, to draw a responsible conclusion about. New Testament text. Very helpful. Earlier, you referred to the majority text uh, manuscripts as all sharing the Byzantine text type or coming out of that Byzantine text type. Now, that's based on literally the, the geography, the, the literal geography of the manuscripts, that they were in what we recognize to be the, I guess, former Byzantine Empire, so Eastern Europe, um, you know, what is modern-day Turkey. And that is significant for evaluating the veracity of texts. And you, you bring this up in class, and I, I remember that because it's just such a common-sense point. But I think it'd be helpful to introduce here in the, um, in the podcast to Dr. Dyer, why, why would we consider a Byzantine text type to be closer to the original autographs than, let's say, a manuscript with its source or origination point in what we think is Mount Sinai or Egypt or, or elsewhere? One of the things that I do teach my students is that when, for example, uh, Paul wrote his letters, um, you know, the ones that he wrote to, his church, to the churches, uh, I have no doubt that those letters, like say the one sent to uh, Colossi, 
that it was very quickly uh, copied for the use of members of the church and passed on, and I believe that they made very careful copies uh, of the original letter from the hand of Paul. Eventually, that um, letter would have, you know, maybe faded or got worn out, um, and very careful copy would have been made, and others could come along and make copies of that and then check it very carefully to that very careful copy. And one of the things that I'm afraid is misunderstood by some scholars is that the texts of the New Testament were immediately recognized by the church to be inspired and needed to be copied, copied carefully, uh, and that the, those careful copies is what explains the amazing, maybe that's not the best term, uh, but the remarkable unity of those manuscripts. Those manuscripts have such gr- tremendous unity because of the careful transmission of the text um, Westcott and Hort, when they did their work, they came up with a speculation as to why the Byzantine text type was so unified. And they came up with the New Testament go, undergoing a recension. That means that somebody made a standardized text, and it was because of that recension uh, then became the basis for copying other uh, manuscripts in the Byzantine area. The only problem with, not the only problem, but the problem with that is there is no historical evidence for that recension. I mean, there's none. Uh, it's pure speculation. John Bergen pointed that out, uh, who was a contemporary of Westcott and Hort. And I think the best reason for holding to the majority text position is to understand that the church did very carefully from the very beginning, right on through the ages, do its best to preserve the text and make very careful copies. How do you answer the common objection that the majority text view is guilty of nose counting? That it's purely just a matter of, you know, the majority of manuscripts have this particular variant, so it must be right. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, some people think that uh, we look upon this as like a vote. so every manuscript gets a vote, and since the, this particular reading gets the majority of votes, uh, then that's what we should think of as the correct reading. Uh, that's not how we look at it. We look at the manuscripts, um, the Byzantine text type, the majority text, and look at it, first of all, as a whole, But we also recognize that within that majority text, that group of manuscripts, there's also um, textual variance within that body of manuscripts as well. Uh, There's other criteria besides just counting manuscripts. Um, Dr. Shaw and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. Sometimes the context makes it very clear what reading belongs there. Um, And it's not just a matter of counting the manuscripts. It's a matter of looking at the body of 
Greek manuscripts and determining, you know, what's the best witness? I look at the majority text to a certain extent as one witness of the Greek New Testament. Um, and I, I mean, that's my position. I don't know if Dr. Shaw wants to add anything to that, but it's, it's not just like it's a vote. I suppose the way I, I think about it is that, uh, first of all, if, if you read a beginning book on New Testament textual criticism, it'll talk about rules of textual criticism. And there's a tendency to think that perhaps these rules are to be employed in every case, uh, that these are hard and fast rules. And so, for example, one of the the rules that you often read about in textual criticism is that the shorter reading is to be preferred. Uh, well, sometimes uh, as you're looking at the text, you realize that the reason this text is shorter, that the, the text is shorter in this particular manuscript, is because the uh, copyist has clearly uh, skipped a word or several words or perhaps a line or several lines. Uh, and in that case, then, the rule that the shorter reading is to be preferred is ignored because the, uh, the copyist has clearly made a mistake. But again, there's a certain evaluation there uh, because one could ask the question, well, has, he, has this copyist left something out or has another copyist added something? What I would say is that the proponents of the critical text tend to presume that copyists were more likely to add things than they were to omit things. And I'm just not sure how we can prove that. Oh, exactly. I, that's, that's a good point. Uh, David Allen Black, in his introduction to New Testament textual criticism, does list uh, those guidelines, sometimes they're called the canons of textual criticism, and he points out that a lot of times one cancels out the other. Um, and so you, you, it's not like it's a hard and fast thing. Uh, one has to be very careful about applying those. And again, it, even um, for myself, uh, there are times when I'm looking at something um, in the majority text and I, I'm aware of what's you know, the critical text and Sometimes I have to ask myself, could this critical text variant be original? Now, I know there's people that just shoot me for saying that. For me, the majority text position is my default. If I can find legitimate reason for going with a variant that's in the critical editions, um, and I think I have good reason for that, then I'm willing to go that route. But I'm never real comfortable when I do that. But it has to me to me be overwhelming. If in my mind everything's equal, I stick with the majority text. What do you get by adopting and and defaulting to the majority text other than the the two obvious ones, the woman caught in adultery in, in John and then also the long ending of Mark? Other than those two very conspicuous blocks of text that usually get ruled out by the or always get ruled out by critical text editions of the New Testament, what what do you get by defaulting to the majority text that you don't get in the critical text? Well, I I think you get a fuller text. In, in other words, I think as I've looked at the issue, and I although I'm 
primarily in Hebrew and Old Testament. I did study textual criticism and paleography under Bruce Metzger hmm. at Princeton. Uh, so, and he was sort of the, the godfather, one of the godfathers of, uh, of modern uh, New Testament textual criticism. I, I suppose, in a certain sense, I tend to prefer a longer text because I think it's just as likely that copyists omit. Uh, in fact, I think it's more likely that copyists omit mm-hmm. uh, rather than that they add to what is already there. And I, I think uh, in any number of places, particularly in the Gospels, where a critical text will omit a repetition of some statement uh, of Jesus, uh, that I think the the repetition was there originally. It's part of Jesus' rhetorical uh, style. Uh, and if we eliminate that, we're missing part of the the style uh, of Jesus as it's reflected in the in the by the gospel writers. I guess the reason why I prefer the majority text is because in my judgment, the majority text is a purer text. Again, going back to the statement uh, we began with from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 and paragraph 8. Now, both sides are interested in the purity of the text. So this isn't, you know, like nobody is trying to corrupt the text. I am very satisfied with my position because I do believe that in the majority text, we have a purer text than those who hold to the critical text position. I mean, that's to me the issue. I mean, we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Scripture. That should not only guide our textual critical position, uh, I think it also should guide our philosophy of translation as well. Mm -hmm. But going back to the Scripture being inspired, we do want to know what exactly was written? We want to try to come up as best we can with the best textual position that gives us the purest text. For my own part, if I, if I can weigh in on this question as well, this is a question submitted to us that I threw out there. Um, we, we referenced earlier that when we're talking about the confessional basis of adopting the majority text, or at least preferring it to the critical text, that we believe God has preserved through all ages and in, in every epoch of the church a his word and given it to his people for their edification and for his own glory. And there's something to be said when we confess that we believe in the holy Catholic apostolic church, that the church is holy because it's set apart by God. It's apostolic because it's founded on apostolic doctrine and teachings uh, passed down to us in every generation. There's always a remnant. But it's Catholic, not just in terms of being universal all around the globe, every tongue, tribe, and nation, but it's also Catholic across time. And so there's something that we hold in common with the church of our forefathers of, of prior generations. And though that's not the primary reason I think uh, we would 
we would cling to the majority text or the, or the primary benefit we would glean from defaulting to the majority text, I do think it's at least an ancillary benefit or tertiary benefit that we can say with confidence we stand in the mainstream of the church through every age uh, when we regard God's word as God's word and what we're talking about with them and, and what we mean when we say plenary verbal inspiration of, of the scriptures. Uh, another question here, and this this does strike, I think, at, this is a good objection or a good question from someone that might prefer the critical text. How do majority, or how does majority text preference handle the several hundred readings marked by the Nestle Alland as per multi? In other words, what do you do when the majority tradition is divided even from within? You make a an educated judgment uh, based on your familiarity with the manuscript tradition as a whole, uh, your familiarity with the particular passage uh, that you're working on. And it's I would say that at that point, it is a judgment call, it's, and, and good men may differ on that. Um, you know, not all majority text proponents are going to agree, on every decision made by another majority text proponent. Just as if you look, for example, at the United Bible Society's uh, Greek New Testament, they grade that for each major uh, variant in the text, they provide a comment with grade uh, getting, uh, giving. So an A grade would be, uh, you know, the committee is pretty much unified that this is the right reading down to a D where there's a fair amount of disunity on the committee as to whether that's the right reading or not. And, and that's going to happen uh, because it's not, it's, not a, uh, it's not a pure science. There's a certain art to it and, it, and judgments are going to be affected by the level of familiarity by, uh, with the particular critic, with the, the breadth of the, of the tradition and, and uh, the various manuscript uh, evidence, uh, and and so I, I think there there can be, uh, and I see this particularly on the part of proponents of the Textus Receptus, that there can be a certain ad hominem uh, response to those who disagree with them uh, that. Well, if you don't agree with me, you're just you're just wicked, uh, and uh, you know failing to recognize uh, that good men uh, with equal training and equal experience may differ in their judgment on any particular case. There is room for disagreement. I mean, we don't get all upset because somebody takes one interpretation of a particular passage. Well, we might get, but <laughs> I mean, we, we might say, yes, I don't agree with that person's interpretation of that particular verse or uh, that particular passage. But we might say, but I can understand where that person's coming from. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing where if I heard somebody preach on a particular verse and I disagree with it, I would walk out you know, of the church, say, well, that's it. I'm not listening to this guy anymore. Now, in some cases, I might if they were, you know, preaching heresy. Um, one of the things, though, is the te critical text position, um, something 
else, so often they'll interject a lot of subjectivism. Um, for me, one of the beauties of the majority text position is that we have some real objective basis for establishing the text. Uh, I don't want subjection. I want as much as possible to have objective evidence for whatever reading I might decide on. I think what I'm saying is I want the manuscript evidence to speak um, rather than somebody's opinion that, well, this is the shorter reading, therefore this is the one that belongs there, um, or this is the older reading. Uh, sometimes the older reading isn't preserved in a Greek manuscript. Sometimes it's preserved in uh, a very ancient um, version. Uh, and the thing about it is if you find a reading supported by an ancient version that predates um, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the point is that that version had to have been, had to have gotten that reading somewhere, most likely a Greek text. Um, and so I think we need to look broader than just the Greek manuscripts, um, but we need to look at the, the witness of the text in these ancient, um, very early the early testament. translations. Yeah, the early translations. Like the yeah. Armenian translation. Oh, the Armenian translation, the uh, the Latin, of yeah. course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, the old Latin. Uh, the Syriac. Yep. There are a few resources that I see Dr. Dyer has brought into the studio with him and, and a book that both Dr. Dyer and Dr. Shaw have recommended to us here at the seminary last year, um, particularly on the long ending of Mark, and that is... Uh, the book title there is The Original Ending of Mark, A Case Study for the Authenticity of Mark 16, 9 through 20. That's by Nicholas Lunn, L-U-N-N. We recommend that book for your consideration if you haven't yet looked at it. And it's dealing specifically with the issue of whether or not those verses ought to be uh, considered as original to, um, to the New Testament and to the original autographs. Uh, the original Gospel of Mark. But Dr. Dyer, I see you have a book there by Tommy Wasserman and Peter Gurry called A New Approach to Textual Criticism, An Introduction to the Coherence-Based Genealogical Method. And I know you've, you've pulled out a statement that, that is, is pretty interesting, and I want to give you an opportunity to speak to this particular book and, and what they're arguing for there. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about this um, new approach to textual Textual criticism. It's, it's, uh, this new approach is called the coherence-based genealogical method. They're, they have developed these computer programs that can go through massive number of manuscripts and see where they agree, and as a result, they're able to, with certain um, certain uh, certainty, I guess you could say, uh, come up with a genealogy of manuscripts. So they're determining, is this a parent manuscript? Is this one an offspring manuscript? And so forth. And uh, what's really, uh, and it's a little complicated, but they're using computer programming uh, to come up with this. But listen to this. This is on page 10 of their book. Particularly since the work of Westcott and Hort in the late 19th century, the Byzantine manuscripts have been disparaged by a majority of New Testament textual critics as the least valuable for recovering the original text when considered as a whole. But when the CBGM, 
was first used in the Catholic letters, the editors found that a number of Byzantine witnesses were surprisingly similar to their own reconstructed text. This unexpected discovery encouraged a second look and led to a renewed appreciation for these manuscripts and their shared text. This, in turn, led them to revise all their earlier decisions where they had chosen against this shared Byzantine text. So it's interesting that this new approach uh, is actually supporting the majority text. Uh, I just find that significant. I mean, this is not something they were out to do. This is just something that happened in, in the process. Um, and it may be as they do more textual critical work in the rest of the New Testament, uh, we're going to find that uh, there may be uh, something to this. Pastorally speaking, shifting gears a little bit out of the technical discussion, and because and, I, I think it's important to close on a pastoral note, this whole conversation, the fact that there are any differences between any manuscripts could be a cause uh, for alarm for some listeners. And, and that makes sense. In our own context, we're, compl- we're always bombarded by uh, marketing at the popular level and then, and then um, scientific scholarship at the technical level that seems to, to almost arrogantly put forward a uh, hegemonic vision of truth and, and, and of what is true, what is false uh, in the world, right? If you buy this, th- you will, without a shadow of a doubt, be happier because scientifically studies show that people are happier when they drive this particular truck or wear this makeup or these clothes. And then uh, scientifically, you know, theories get put out there almost as if they are um, uh, unable to be opposed. Now, when we're talking about historical work, which is really where manuscript interpretation and and textual criticism lies, uh, like Dr. Shaw said earlier, it's more of an art than a science. What would you say to to the person either in the pew or even the seminary student who's who's getting into these into these issues, wading into these waters, and, and is alarmed and, and is frankly worried about the integrity of God's word as we have it and as we understand it. Um, pastorally speaking, would you would you say to that person, you know, there's no cause for alarm here, and if you would say that, how would you back that up? There's no cause for real alarm. But regardless of which translation you use, make sure that you also read the long ending of Mark and (laughs) the uh, uh, story of the woman caught in adultery in John 7 and 8, Mm -hmm. uh, because I believe those to be original parts of the biblical text. Uh, But again, I would say that um, regardless of which English Bible translation you're using, uh, the Word of God is there. Uh, And... uh, you know, if there are uh, some niggling points, they're, they're, they're minor points. They are not uh, major uh, considerations. There are no uh, published New Testament texts. There are no, no New Testament manuscripts uh, that call into question any significant doctrine of the Christian faith. And so be confident in the Bible that you read. The thing about the transcribing of the New Testament is that we do know that it's better preserved than other ancient documents. When you realize how much hand copying was done by scribes, uh, it's actually quite remarkable that the New Testament doesn't have more variants than it does. 
I think the monks were probably particularly uh, interested in carefully transcribing the text. But people should be thrilled that the New Testament has, for the most part, been very carefully copied. Um, And if a person holds to a critical text position, I think they also recognize we have a very solid foundation for our faith um, in the Greek New Testament, regardless of which critical methodology one adopts. I, I think another thing, just as a sort of mildly entertaining experiment, uh, that the uh, the layperson who's concerned about these kinds of issues might just take a book of the New Testament and set out to copy it, mm-hmm. just handwrite a copy of it, and then have someone go through and spot the mistakes made in the copying of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I think it gives you, it be in, our, in our age of printing and computer technology and all of that, it will give you a, uh, a certain sympathy for the task of the copyist in the uh, in the Middle Ages, who uh, was stuck with, uh, if you will, inferior technology mm-hmm. and uh, not able to Xerox uh, anything, uh, but had to hand copy by poor light uh, and quill pen and quill pen. Uh, that, uh, as Dr. Dyer said, it's a, it's a marvel of preservation that the mm. text has been copied as faithfully as it has. Because really the hand copying of any text is not as easy a task as it might first appear. Yeah, Dr. Morales, this past semester in our Hebrew Exegesis 1 class, had us copy out the Hebrew with the, with the Masoretic you know, markings for all of the book of Ruth, which is only four chapters. It's about 85 verses, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really not a big deal, but man, it took me forever. And, and during that process, my daughter, um, my oldest daughter, uh, saw what I was doing, and she started copying it down to the best of her ability on index cards. And though she doesn't know Hebrew, um, surprisingly, I could make out what she was writing. And my wife, who studied Hebrew in undergraduate studies, she could make out what she was writing. And we could at least tell, you know, the, the broad contours of what was going on and, and who was speaking to whom and who the characters were um, for the portions that she copied. But in, in any case, gentlemen, I, I thank you for your candor. I thank you for joining me today and handling some of these questions, what, what can be a very technical issue, but I think is gaining in popularity as, as folks take an interest in confessional bibliology. Uh, the, the end The end statement here, I think, that needs to be said in summary is that whether you adopt a critical text position or a majority text position, you are handling the Word of God. Um, And it's not even merely that the Word of God is is in there somewhere in a Bardian sense, but it is the very Word of God that that you are preaching, that you are receiving from the pulpits, that you, you are reading in your Bibles, and you can be confident that... Uh, the word has been preserved through all ages for God's people and their edification in his glory and uh, an increase of his kingdom and the, the reformation even of his church. So I thank you gentlemen for joining me in the studio today and looking forward to our spring semester about to start in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.